Empire Lines uncovers the unexpected, often two-way flows of empires through art. Interdisciplinary thinkers use individual artworks as artifacts of imperial exchange, revealing the how and why of the monolith empire. We're celebrating 50 episodes of Empire Lines, with three specials recorded offline and in the museum space. This time in the Tate Modern in London for their latest exhibition, Surrealism Beyond Borders. Returning to Empire Lines, Richard Gray joins curator Kareen Harmon to explore the works of Mozambican artist Malangatana and Gwenya. Plus, curator Keith Shiri unveils Malangatana's restored mural at the all-new Africa Centre in London. Hello, I'm Karine Harmond. I'm an assistant curator of international art at Tate Modern. My name is Richard Gray. I knew Malangatana in Mozambique, um, where I was working as a teacher and a uh, people's historian. We met on a national campaign, uh, 1978 to 1980, worked together uh, for two years in Nampula to take back Mozambique's history and culture after the, the 500 years of Portuguese colonialism. Uh, it was uh, largely done by oral history and going into the rural areas and interviewing elders who remembered um, old battles when the, when the Portuguese were in the process of trying to uh, create what was called effective occupation. I was a teacher and I, I organised groups of students and other teachers. Malangatana was an artist responsible for cultural development in communal villages and he came with us and while we were interviewing he would be sitting on a stool drawing. And Karine, can you tell us what we're looking at? Yes, so uh, what we're looking at today is an oil painting on board made by Malangatana in 1967. This is a quite large painting, I would say, of uh, many different figures overlapping with each other. They are all um, highlighted in black, very uh, precise contours uh, in the color palette of oranges, reds, yellows and blues and all of these figures uh, overlapping with each other so completely kind of collapsing any sense of um, hierarchy or perspective um, they are looking quite aggressive there is a lot of uh, very big white teeth uh, also long hands that look like clothes. Uh, a lot of these figures are actually uh, biting into others. Uh, we can see some blood uh, being drawn out uh, of the bodies. And then all these eyes, many uh, very big, wide open eyes, looking at the viewer, but also looking at each other. You mentioned this painting was produced in the mid-1960s, by which time the artist Malangatana was already a very prominent cultural and political figure in Mozambique. Can you tell me a little bit about him and how this work is connected to his politics and the politics of Mozambique more widely. In the 1960s until 1975, Mozambique was still a Portuguese colony um, and um, Malangatana was in Maputo, which is the capital of Mozambique at the time called Lorenzo Marques, um, was part of a group of artists and writers who were uh, 
very actively uh, anti-colonial. Uh, other writers in his circle were uh, writing journals and articles about Mozambican culture and how uh, Mozambican artists and uh, intellectuals should be kind of reclaiming their African culture uh, against the kind of colonial uh, imposition of uh, European uh, tropes. So uh, in 1964, Malangatana started being involved with the Frelimo, which is the uh, Mozambican Liberation Front. Uh, they were basically leading the revolution and the anti-colonial struggle uh, in Mozambique. Um, and in that same year, he was actually uh, imprisoned by the PIDE, um, the Portuguese secret police, uh, for 18 months. And then when he came out of his imprisonment, uh, a, a little bit later, he painted uh, this work. And I think what really kind of comes through in this work is that sense of colonial oppression, is that sense of, you know, uh, living under a very difficult um, colonial system. Now, back in December, Richard, we recorded an episode of Empire Lines in Sarsa's Brunei Gallery for our Sophisticated Weapon, which was an exhibition you co-curated about the Mozambican Revolution in 1975. For those of our listeners who haven't yet heard the podcast, could you briefly summarise Mozambique's colonial history, those 500 years? The Portuguese arrived in Mozambique, Vasco da Gama, 1498. Before that, Mozambique uh, had its own long history of, of links towards the sea with Arab traders and uh, with East Asia. Vasco da Gama was trying to take control of the um, spice trade, especially pepper. He was on his way to India and he stopped in Mozambique to take on water. You can go and visit the well where his ships are supposed to have been. The Portuguese only managed to establish control of the mainland away from the coast around 1900. And Malangatana was very interested in that because um, his grandparents' generation fought in the wars which, which tried to prevent the Portuguese taking control uh, of his part of Mozambique in the south. And when he was born in 1936 was the time when the Portuguese were really tightening their grip on Mozambique. The Portuguese dictator Salazar and his Estado Novo new state uh, was a fascist regime and this painting that we're talking about um, actually has a title in the exhibition here it's uh, catalogued as untitled 1967 um, in Malangatana's 50th birthday retrospective in 1986 uh, it had a title esta situação durará, which uh, means uh, until when will this situation go on. There's, a, there's an illusion there, possibly in the title. How long is this going to go on? And Malangatana was very prominent during the wars of independence between roughly 1964 to 1974 and the years that followed in the civil war that then ensued in Mozambique from the late 70s up until the 90s. But he was also a prominent actor in Frelimo, who we mentioned in the last podcast. Can you tell me a bit about that organisation and how it was connected to the government? Frelimo was Mozambique's national liberation movement before independence, uniting people of, of uh, all political persuasions because the first thing was to achieve independence. Frelimo uh, was founded in 1962, um, and the first president was Eduardo Monlani. Monlani was educated at the same Protestant mission school system uh, as, as Malangatana, so they had a, a lot in common. And uh, Malangatana was drawn to Eduardo Monlani and Frelimo. By 1964, it had become clear that Portugal was not going to 
give way on any point, and that uh, they had the Salazar had the support of uh, the USA, NATO. Frilimo decided that there was nothing for it. The only way was to take up arms. Malangatana's links with Frilimo began in 1962. He was active in the very early days. Uh, he belonged to the very first unit, Frilimo unit, in the south of Mozambique. And Malangatana's community was the Ronga community of southern Mozambique, with um, some of his friends from his networks in, in Lorenzo Marx, which is now Maputo, the capital. They were involved in, in, in mobilizing people um, undercover in, in the capital and also in the rural districts around the capital, including uh, Matalana, which is where uh, he was born. There was a long drawn out 10 year war of liberation. And in 1974, um, the Portuguese army had had enough uh, and junior officers in the Portuguese army fed up with fighting colonial wars in Mozambique and elsewhere in Portugal's African empire, staged a coup and deposed the regime. By then, Salazar had gone, and uh, it, was, it was called the Carnation Revolution in 1974. That brought the end of the War of Liberation, and Mozambique uh, won its independence, total independence from Portugal, on June the 25th, 1975. By then, Mondlan had been assassinated. Uh, his successor was Samora Machel, who became the first president of, of independent Mozambique in 75. Frelimo became the ruling party. In 1977, Frelimo formally adopted socialism, and this is the link with the, with the previous exhibition we talked about, because in those first decade or so of independence from 75, 77 adopting socialism formally, uh, up until the mid-1980s, um, Frelimo was busy trying to build a new socialist society in, in Mozambique, and Malangatana was part of that also. Do you think that we should consider Malangatana as a kind of propagandist, like his fellow Frelimo members? He did not see himself as a propagandist or, as he put it, a, a pamphleteering artist. But his works had a political agenda. So in the way that his European patrons, like Pancho Gerdish and Ulibeya, they saw his work in, a, in, in an apolitical way as something um, kind of coming from the universal unconscious of humanity, Julian Beinhardt, a South African architect, described him as a unique brand of surrealist. I think something that is uh, quite interesting, and actually the inclusion of uh, Malangatana's work in uh, this exhibition, Surrealism Beyond Borders, um, is due to the fact that uh, Malangatana in Mozambique was very much in touch um, with European artists and commentators who were uh, in Africa at the time. So Pancho Guedes in Mozambique was an important patron of Malangatana. He was a Portuguese architect. Uh, Frank McEwen, who was a British uh, curator and artist living in Rhodesia at the time, today Zimbabwe. Uli Bayer, who was a, a, a German also kind of curator and art critic uh, working in Nigeria. All these European art commentator uh, who encountered the work of Malangatana, always kind of looked at his work through, obviously, their European references to surrealism, because they found in the way in which he was using, you know, personal, but also collective ancestral histories, uh, they found a link to uh, the surrealist reference to um, the collective unconscious and different things like that. They were associating his work with surrealism. He didn't really get it. But in the end, he realized that there were some connections. So he says in a 1983 interview, 
at the beginning, it was confusing, especially after my first solo exhibition. People talked about me and I didn't understand them. They said I was a surrealist or a naive. They called my themes ghostly. They referred to things like the collective unconscious. They spoke of the Dadaist as a mandatory reference point for my painting. And I didn't know what it all meant or how relevant it was. So I tried to understand what people really wanted to tell me. And without a doubt, I found myself in some of it. So we really see kind of that, I would say, sometimes problematic aspect of just art history, which is defining art that you are necessarily used to through your own references. Uh, but at the same time, because surrealism was and is still a movement about, you know, personal, social and political liberation, it is a movement that was um, kind of picked up on and was felt relevant in so many different contexts, which is what really Surrealism Beyond Borders is kind of looking at. For Malangatana, he never saw himself as a surrealist, of course, but he did understand the connections with it. And later in life, he participated in actually the 1971 uh, International Surrealist Exhibition in Chicago. He participated in two International Surrealist Exhibitions in Lisbon, one in 1984, one in 1994 so um, so yes he did see uh, the affinities between his work and also his kind of political commitments and the the commitments and the work of other uh, surrealist artists. And Karine, you mentioned that in this painting we see the white teeth and the claws of humans and animals and that sense of collapse of any notion of hierarchy I think in a manner that's quite reminiscent of Picasso's Guernica really um, and you said that Malangatana was an incredibly prolific artist throughout the War of Independence, right up until the 70s. Is this work quite typical of his style, or what else was he making during this period? Yes, this is really uh, a work that is typical of his style. And actually, Malangatana's works were quite homogeneous. And I think by the uh, mid-1960s, he had already kind of formed his style. And like throughout the rest of his life, he would produce works that uh, are very much in this uh, kind of uh, aesthetic. Before we go into who Malangatana has uh, influenced, I think it's really important to remind the work of Bertina Lopez, who was uh, an artist who was being very uh, active in Mozambique, in Lorenzo Marquez, in the 50s. And actually her work uh, really influenced Malangatana's work. And uh, again, in this idea of kind of bringing to the fore women artists who have been kind of forgotten from history, uh, Bertina Lopez is one of these artists uh, she then uh, emigrated uh, from uh, Mozambique uh, to Portugal and then ended up living in uh, Italy. Uh, but she was still very linked to the Mozambican artistic circles as well uh, and always had a very important influence. Uh, Malangatana paid tribute to Bertina Lopez, just uh, backing up Karine's point. Um, and he, he said that uh, she showed him how to... Um, raise the political issues, the, the disturbances in society was the way he phrased it, uh, without being a pamphleteering artist. He said that she showed him the way. So yes, his work uh, influenced other artists like uh, Ignacio Mazzini, uh, Shisano, uh, a really well-known uh, Mozambican sculptor, but also Ernesto Chicani. And Malangatana's own anti-colonialist stance in his undercover work for Frelimo led to him being imprisoned by the colonial security police between 1964 and 1966. He'd only very recently been released when he painted this very picture that we're in front of today. We've spoken about the role of art pre-revolution. How do you think that visual art and particularly surrealism and modern graphic design were really instrumentalised during this period and afterwards in building the new nation? Again, I come back to the first title of this painting. 
how long will this go on? I mean, he painted it in 1967. He was only released from prison in 1966. He was still recuperating from a not ideal experience in, in the colonial jail of Mashava, where he'd been interrogated, tortured, and um, then been involved immediately on release in a very unpleasant, very nasty trial while he was in prison. A Protestant pastor called Father Gwambi had, had died in the hands under torture by the security police. And Malangatana was called to give evidence in the trial, and that upset him deeply. He got artist's block. He was so upset by the situation that he couldn't paint, which, which was, for Malangatana, extraordinary. I mean, that must have been one of the only times in his life when he didn't make art. He would be painting or drawing at every opportunity. So this painting that we're looking at is one of the first ones that he did after getting over this artist's block. So he's, he's beset by these demons and ghouls and, and, and monsters. And he said that when he got started painting again, um, his work took on much stronger uh, political anti-colonialist stance. So you mentioned in 1971, in that same year, Malangatana was awarded a grant from the Lisbon-based Gulbenkian Foundation to study printmaking and ceramics in Portugal. And you've mentioned, obviously, there are these European links, but do you think we could argue that, in a way, he was co-opted by the colonial powers and perhaps those hierarchies of culture? Yeah. I think there is probably this aspect of uh, his work and how uh, why is it that Malangatana ended up being such an internationally recognised figure of Mozambican modernism, you know? And again, the question of the artists who kind of fell out of history, like Bertina Lopez, who maybe weren't that much um, linked to the European power structures, I would say. But also because of all his relationships, and we can see that in, in his kind of participation in all these surrealist exhibitions, uh, Malangatana was an artist who actively kind of expanded his network. And that also explains why he was so well known. He was kind of all over the place. He was an artist who really understood the art world, I would say. Supporting Karin's point there, uh, his networking and his reputation as an artist meant that uh, the security police couldn't stop him going to Lisbon. He was always wanted to more formal training in art throughout his life. And they tried to stop him going. The row reached, uh, you know, um, very high levels in the colonial government. But in the end, uh, he got on the plane. I mean, there was almost a, a you know, a, a, a hoo-ha at the airport, but he managed to get on the plane and go to Portugal. And you're still in touch with much of Malangatana's family, and they've kindly shared some music that features in this podcast. Can you tell me how it connects to this artwork in particular? Yes. The song is called... Which means, um, I've got no mother, I've got no father. The chorus ends, uh, nobody in this world cares for me. This painting has um, personal autobiographical allusions for Malangatana. There's a child in the centre, this very distressed child, surrounded by demons and ghouls. He had experienced a time when he was alone in the world, born and brought up for his first ten years in the rural locality of Matalana, which is 42 kilometres outside the capital. He was very close to his mother. and She created what he called an, an, an oasis of peace and happiness, despite the rigours of colonialism. But in 1947, when he was 11, 
the school he was at, where they welcomed Ronga culture. The language of instruction in his school was, was Shironga. And the Protestant missionaries who were independent of the colonial uh, government uh, welcomed African cultures and histories. Malangatana loved his school. He first learned drawing with pencil there. Uh, when he was as a very young child, he drew in the sand. With the tightening of the colonialism in the 1940s, the school was forced to close by the colonial authorities. The same year, he had another, what he called calamidadi, calamity, uh, because his mother became seriously ill with, with a mental affliction. And uh, so in 1947, he found himself with no mother. His father was away doing migrant labor in South Africa. And he was home alone. Nobody was looking after him. He lost weight. He became very unkempt. Somebody in his family noticed, and he went to live with an aunt. Many of the viewers here will not be familiar with the figures with the sharp teeth and the biting people's heads and shoulders and knees to Malangatana and to his Ronga-speaking community in Matalana. They were figures, not people. They, they were metaphysical figures who were well-known, and they had names. His mother would say, looking at his paintings, oh, look, there's that demon, so-and-so. Do you remember me telling you about that one when you were a child? For example, Mudedeleni, who was a monster that parents threatened their children with if they didn't go to sleep at night. They said, Mudedeleni will get you. There was a giant snake who lived in the river in Komati. So these figures in the painting were, I won't say familiar, because they were spirits. They were not there every day, but they were part of community life. When I asked local residents in Matalana about Malangatana's paintings and showed them some of his paintings, they said, oh, oh, yeah, those are shipoku, which means monsters. We've spoken about surrealism as one kind of European connection that the artist had, but how did Malangatana contribute to the broader Africanist aesthetic in Europe and America? Malangatana, as Karin said, uh, was a great networker. He had all sorts of contacts all over the world. It's, it's interesting people kind of lionise Malangatana and make him t- out to be a, some huge kind of individual hero. He always spoke about we. He always spoke about we Mozambican artists, writers, playwrights, poets, sculptors. We want to show you what we have on an equal basis to restore the balance. He was about saying, we love your art and culture. You must love ours. So he was all about... Um, Uh, opening the doors and breaking down the the barriers which there were between uh, African art and uh, European and modernist art. And lots of people have seen parallels and affinities, and it was a two-way process. We could go back to the beginning of the 20th century and the the way that European artists seized on African sculptures, mainly mainly from West Africa, but you could also say here we are in the late 20th century where Malangatana is revitalizing European art or the modernist art movements of Europe. It wasn't new to Malangatana, like I've said, it had roots in the culture of the community where he was born, but it was new to Europeans. In our episode on Mozambican posters, we talked about the importance of visual art to a population that had been kept illiterate and undereducated during the times of Portuguese colonialism. And I wonder, Richard, why do you think this particular image is helpful in rethinking our perceptions about not just Mozambique, but the concept of empire more broadly? What's interesting there is that Malangatana's life was bisected by independence. Independence was 1975, when he was 39, and he died when he was 74, in 2011. So he lived through colonial times, 
and he lived, as I said earlier, through the toughest of colonial times when colonialism was most repressive. You know, the only way that if you were a Mozambican, you could be civilized was if you forgot your home language, you forgot the clothes you wore, you forgot the food you ate, and you started behaving and acting like a European in every aspect of your life. Indigenous, it means natives, it's a pejorative term, but also in the colonial system, it was a legal term. And the Portuguese held that uh, indigenous, the African residents of Mozambique were uncivilized. Now civilizados was the word. And the only way that they could become civilized was by rejecting their home languages, African histories, the African cultures of their communities, and by becoming assimilated European citizens. Malangatana rejected that from his very first solo exhibition in 1961. And he said uh, that uh, what he was doing, what his work was about, was that, was that we can be civilised without abandoning our own things. I'd interviewed uh, the people that he knew who were young uh, in the early days of independence and when they first saw his paintings, uh, the pride they took in saying, this is an artist who was born here and look at this work that he's producing. So it's just the recognition of, of, of seeing your own culture, your own history reflected uh, in paintings. He began in that time of building socialism in Mozambique and then after the socialist years he was, he, he was always a, a Frelimo supporter, a patriot and his interest in building a, the culture of the new Mozambique, of finding what he and uh, Frelimo called the Mozambican personality. Sometimes conflicted, in fact often conflicted because he was a man of peace and he had to come to terms with the violence that was going on around him. The abhorrence, which you can see, these teeth, it's, it's how awful it is to be, you know, the sense of being surrounded by violence. In terms of empire lines, he straddled the empire line. <laughs> he had a foot on both sides. Surrealism Beyond Borders spans 80 years in 50 countries to show how the art movement inspired and united artists across the globe, from Buenos Aires to Cairo, Prague to Tokyo. Previous histories of the art movement have really honed in on 1920s Paris. So how do you think this painting in particular really helps to expand our global understanding of surrealism as an art movement? Yeah, that's a very good question. Actually, this painting in particular was picked up quite a lot by the press when this exhibition was in New York uh, last year. It was, I think, the front page of the New York Times at some point. It was in the New Yorker's uh, review too. Uh, and I think because, well, people first are surprised of uh, seeing this work, but also, and again, to go back to Malangatana's international networks and um, participation in all these different international surrealist exhibitions, it goes to looking at this uh, movement, surrealism, as a movement of interconnections, as a movement that is actually a network of artists that sometimes didn't claim themselves as surrealists, but whose trajectory intersected with surrealism at some point. Thank you ever so much, Karine. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm Keith Shiri, and I got the job at the Africa Center. September the 16th, 1986, that was before you were born, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I was the art administrator, if you like, responsible for bringing African artists, painters, musicians, writers to London. Um, uh, it was just a, a wonderful job for, for me to have at the time. 
just before the end of apartheid in South Africa, there were a lot of cultural activists at the time who were living in London who would come and contribute to their stories and, of course, to, to offer their support to the struggle against apartheid in South Africa. Earlier on in the episode, we were talking about a Malangatana mural that was produced in the 60s, but this one comes from a very special visit in 1987. Describe Mother Africa to me and tell me about how it came about. One afternoon, uh, Malangatana was in London. At the time, we were doing a group focus on territories across the continent. This time, it was a focus on Lusophone countries, but specifically on art from Mozambique. And Malangatana came. We were honoured to have him. And he came to London the afternoon when he did that mural. He was just hanging around, waiting for people to come to see his work upstairs at the Africa Centre. Could I ask the then director of the Africa Centre if he could perhaps use one corner of the Africa Centre restaurant to, to, to paint something? We didn't know what he was coming out of. So he made a sketch and he started painting. One afternoon it was done. And it was a powerful statement for all of us. And I think that I'm so happy that the Africa Center felt that it was important to preserve it and then take it from its old building and restored it. And that's why it's here. You would be very proud to see where it is now. Let's talk about that in a bit more depth then. I'm fascinated with the idea that Malangatana was painting this in the corner of a restaurant in 1987 in the Africa Centre. And here we are today in the new Africa Centre, just upstairs from the restaurant here. So tell me about the history of the Africa Centre a little bit more then. How did the Malangatana mural from there come to here and the building's reopening in 2022? The Africa Centre stood for very many things. I mean, don't forget that this was an organization that was founded in 1964 with the support from the Catholic Church. I mean, it was officially opened by then president of Zambia, Kenneth Kaunda, in 1964. This was at the beginning of African independence, the end of colonial rule. There were so many Africans who were either in exile or some of them were students waiting to go back home to uh, take their part in the new countries that were gaining their independence. Uh, it became a home, like a home from home for many Africans. So in other words, it became a meeting point in the centre of London. There were writers, the politicians, the former president of South Africa, you know, um, Tambombek, he passed through the Africa Centre, the former Archbishop of South Africa, Desmond Tutu, used to come to the Africa Centre. Wole Shawinka passed through the Africa Centre. Ben Okri, who also passed through the Africa Centre. Malangatan, of course, he also put his work in the Africa Centre. Semben Usman passed through the Africa Centre. And so on, I mean, there's so many, and of course students, and, and it became a very quite important place, a hub for, uh, for Africans. And then so you have all this kind of space that was there to offer a voice, voices, multiple voices for Africans, because we had a restaurant, we had a gallery, we had music, performers, and a little bookshop there as well that was where you would find people who want to learn something about Africa and the past through the Africa Centre. It survived in spite of very little funding that it got. My view is that after the end of apartheid in South Africa, people were not, no longer coming to the Africa for one reason or the other. So it was struggling. And I think that, you know, of course, being rescued as it moved from Covent Garden to come here, it was so unnecessary to have uh, taken so long to come where it is now. 
So in this mural, we see a striking single figure and their head in profile. What does Mother Africa say about Malangatana's ideas about Mozambique? I mean, the blues and the reds, that's always been something that really is uh, the red soil of Mozambique. He made so much reference on the red. Of course, uh, the blue in itself, you know, it's kind of it's something that is calmness that he always uses as kind of calming. I agree with Keith. Um, the, the, the blue, he himself said blue was one of what he considered his optimistic colours, his happy, forward-looking, positive colours. And when things were not looking so good, when the outlook for Mozambique was a lot worse in the times of the, of the internal conflict, earlier in the 1980s, this is 1987, he stopped painting, he stopped using blues and so on. So when this blue reappears in his painting, he's beginning to look outwards and upwards and thinking that there is going to be a brighter future for Mozambique and for Southern Africa in general. After 1987, apartheid fell apart. So he, he maybe uh, wasn't wrong. Malangatana spoke often about this red earth of Mozambique. I would be nothing without the red earth of Mozambique. Mm. So that's the red of the soil, particularly of his home area, his home locality, Matalana. Uh, the red of the, of the pots, which his mother and the other women used. The patterns which surround Mother Africa in the mural, you can see the colours. Malangatana's mother, Kloyasi Shirinza, was herself an artist. His first education as an artist in his infancy was playing at her feet while she was busy working with other women on beadwork, needlework, embroidery and so on. And the colours which you can see are the colours of the pottery, Capulanus, the cloths which women wore throughout the African continent. He was not only making reference to his mother, but he was also talking about African women who were on the forefront of uh, the struggle, especially in South Africa. He was talking about Winnie Mandela, for example. He spoke about Gracia Marcel, the then wife of the president of Mozambique. And then I think that it was so empowering when he was kind of saying that you do not forget that women were always in the trenches with all of us, but they suffered more than people expect. And of course, when he did that mural, that was before the end of apartheid in South Africa. That's when we had Winnie Mandela being persecuted by the South African Defence Force, of course, the South African regime. One of the things that Malangatana had to say about this mural was that I am not a child of myself. What do you think that this mural says about Malangatana's attitudes about Africa? It's very significant in many ways that uh, you are a vehicle of what you have learned. You produce something that you have lived through. The memories that you produce are not just kind of coming from you. The source of reference of all of us, the voiceless of the continent, that you don't find that there has been a continuation of memory and the kind of how important that is to the present. In most of his conversation, that some which we read, something that also he's spoken about when he was putting his work together, points of information from his mother. Sometimes she was mad, she was mentally unhealthy, she was struggling to raise her child by herself because her father was in the mines in South Africa at the time as that used to happen. She became the source of the stories that he then put into his paintings. It became something which was so powerful. His work is not just painting for pleasure. There's stories in each work. I mean, he would stand again on everything that he did. He would come and tell you a story. He can spend a lot of time explaining in detail each figure, what it represents. So in other words, he put everything together on a painting.
So Richard, Keith was alluding to the fact that Malangatana was really plugged into these international art networks, which is something we've spoken about earlier on in the episode at the Tate with Surrealism Beyond Borders. His 1987 visit to London was part of an international touring schedule and he also produced lots of other works whilst he was in London. Can you tell me a bit about them? Yes, his visit in 1987, the UK, London was only one of half a dozen or more different places, both in the West and in the Socialist Bloc. For example, after his big retrospective exhibition in 1986 in Maputo, the first stop afterwards was Cuba. And he also went to Norway, to Sweden, to Bulgaria, to Austria. London was only one port of call. And the afternoon when he did that mural, that afternoon he was waiting for me because we had planned to go to see an exhibition at the Haywood Gallery, the, an exhibition by Diego Rivera, which was Mexican artist. It was the first time I ever, ever heard of Diego Rivera through Malangatana. Then got to learn a little bit more about the uh, Mexican arts, how it inspired him. Uh, Mexican artists who were revolutionary, who really kind of made a point of engaging the ordinary people through the work they were doing at the time. And don't forget Malangatana at the time, he was a thorn in the Portuguese settlers in Mozambique. He was imprisoned and he was uh, discouraged to make paintings, his work not to so much persecute the church or the Portuguese colonies in Mozambique. And so when he's speaking to Western audiences at the Africa Centre, when he said, I'm not a child of myself, he's coming from the history and the culture of Mozambique, he was aware that he was talking to a Western audience, mainly at the Africa Centre that night, and he wanted to say, look, um, his early Western patrons back in the 60s, when when he started painting full-time, he had his first opportunity to paint full-time thanks to Pancho Guedes, who launched his trajectory as an artist. They thought that he was like a shooting star, that he'd come from nowhere, that he was this kind of one-off genius who drew on the subconscious of humanity. So when Malangatana comes to the Africa Centre and is talking to a mainly white European audience in that night, he's saying, no, look, I'm not a child of myself. This doesn't come from nowhere. This comes from the history and the culture of my people. The form of his work himself, he said it several times. How many of those kind of people in the West have been were trying to suggest that please come to Europe and take part in some of our galleries and then say, no, I would rather stay in Mozambique because he said, why should I leave Mozambique with this red earth, with this kind of form that I can use? Because you want to interfere with the way I look at uh, Mozambique or his, what inspires him. His inspiration does not come from people who then want to interfere with his work to say, oh, well, look, you must uh, make your painting softer. You must not make it too harsh on us. You, you know, trying to, to compromise his work so he refused that interference uh, and uh, especially when he was reluctant to be part of this how they put you in a corner where that you have to conform of the idea of the look at Africa the same applies to people like Usman Zemben's work Usman Zemben the film that is around now the Mandabi at the time was the only first African film which was uh, in an African language the first film that was ever ever produced in Africa just in a feature film you know 
the French were putting pressure on him and said, please put some French because we want your film to be in the global, in other words, for the elite of Europe. So he was saying, I'm making my work for the ordinary people. You know, the connection by the choice of the approach, the grammar and what you're going to introduce in your narrative, in other words. You know, what Malangantano was suggesting that I would rather do something which I think people are familiar with and make sure that, you know, they are not so far divorced from the origin of the tools that he's going to use in order to create uh, work for his people so that his audience foremost were his people from Mozambique first before anybody comes to make a critical judgment on, on anything that he produced. What does the mural form of this speak to concerning access to art? You prefer that uh, medium, you know, in other words, to, to paint on walls rather than to paint on a canvas so that the work goes onto galleries. He was offering access to the ordinary people that you can do that and using the walls as a canvas. So in other words, you put outside, it's accessible, nobody have to pay. You can just see the work as you pass, as you're walking by. Inspired largely by the Mexican mural artists, you know, they were the revolutionary Mexican, Diego Rivera and others who really demonstrate how important, how powerful art can do to change, but you must make sure that it's accessible rather than just have it accessible to the elite. When you put it in the gallery, therefore you divorce the art to the owner people. The sparsity of galleries, not just in Mozambique, but across Africa, it's not a tradition to put your work in an exclusive space. Art was meant to be accessible to everyone. You paint, you say that this is what you want to say. You know, when he came, which is quite important, I mean, for us, who just thought that it was rather odd that he had an exhibition upstairs because he knew that the exhibition was only limited for maybe one month or two. Making reference to this piece of work, it stayed. So in other words, it got the longevity of that. I mean, in all of Southern Africa, most of the art that has survived time whether it is in the cave paintings or that have been around in the prehistoric art from all of Southern Africa. It's an approach that I don't think that has been repeated ever again. But it's there still. You still go around the different countries in Southern Africa. You see all these kind of cave paintings that were just meant to be for people. Just somehow, if you're wandering around, you just see some uh, art which is, make, which is accessible to people now, you know, which is uh, important. Including now, most Africans don't have any access to Malangatanangwenya's work. But if it were to be displayed the way he actually offered it to the Africans the way it is, that everyone now is able to actually walk through and then see it even in London. You know, we were talking about later on about Tate Modern because, you know, again, it is here, but I don't think that very many people have access to Malangatanangwena. It's so important that it's here at the Africa Centre that we people make sure that his approach uh, and thinking that way that your work is sustainable to you know remain over time. Fantastic. Thank you, Keith, ever so much. You're welcome. Welcome. And thank you, Richard. Total pleasure. Thanks, Yelena. This episode is part of Empire Lines at 50, featuring three exhibitions ahead of their final weekends. See the episode notes for links to the last tickets and the other episodes on Ingrid Pollard and Althea McNish. Empire Lines is produced by Jelena Sofronievich. For more episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.